Grace and mercy and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I know that our text is the book of Proverbs for these next ten weeks, but as I was preparing uh, the messages, there's another story in the Bible that came to mind, and I want to read it to you. It comes from Matthew chapter 25. I'm going to be reading from the message translation. Here's the story. The kingdom of God is also like a man going off on an extended trip. He called his servants together and delegated responsibilities. To one he gave $5,000, to another 2000 and to a third $1,000, depending on their abilities. Then he left. Right off, the first servant went to work and doubled his master's investment. The second did the same, but the man with the $1,000 dug a hole and carefully buried his master's money. After a long absence, the master of those three servants came back and settled up with them. The one given $5,000 showed him how he had doubled his investment. His master commended him, Good work. You did your job well. From now on, be my partner. The servant with the $2,000 showed how he had also doubled his master's investment. His master commended him, Good work. You did your job well. From now on, be my partner. The servant given $1,000 said, Master, I know you have high standards and hate careless ways, that you demand the best and make no allowances for error. I was afraid I might disappoint you, so I found a good hiding place and secured your money. Here it is, safe and sound, down to the last cent. The master was furious. That's a terrible way to live. It's criminal to live cautiously like that. If you knew I was after the best, why did you do less than the least? The least you could have done would have been to invest the sum with the bankers, where at least I would have gotten a little interest. Take the $1,000 and give it to the one who risked the most, and get rid of this play-it-safe who won't go out on a limb. Throw him out into utter darkness." Now, when you hear that story, I, I think it raises some pretty obvious questions. Like, what did that servant do, that third guy, what did he do that was so wrong? He didn't steal his master's money. He didn't spend his master's money. He didn't foolishly invest the money. He didn't lose the money. He kept every last single penny of what he was given. So why was he treated the way he was? What did he do that was so wrong? The answer is nothing. He did nothing. He was given an opportunity to do something, but he chose to do nothing. <laughs> and believe it or not, God condemns that as a sin. Now, I'm not sure what all went through this guy's mind. Maybe he was a little bit intimidated by the fact that the other servants were given more money, you know, the five talents, $5,000 to $2,000, that they were given more responsibility. Maybe he doubted his ability to handle such a large amount of money. Maybe he was too busy with other things to take the time to master his master's money. Regardless, I'll tell you what this lazy, wicked servant should have done he should have taken charge 
of the situation. He should have taken charge of the opportunity that his master had given him. He should have said, this is an opportunity and I will not waste it. See, this is the same attitude, friends, that you and I should have about our lives. The lives our master has given us from the time of conception until the day God chooses to call us home, he has given us a life to manage. He's given us an opportunity. Indeed, he's given us many opportunities. So we ought to have the same attitude that this is an opportunity called life and we will not waste it. That's why today, using the book of Proverbs, which we're spending 10 weeks in, we're going to take a look at how to take charge of your life. Now, I want you to understand something. I want to back up to last week. I don't want you to miss this point. To take charge of your life implies that you already have a certain amount of wisdom. Now, do you remember where wisdom begins? Remember from last week? Anybody remember anything I said last week? Where does wisdom begin? The fear of the Lord, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, for any wisdom to kick in, for any wisdom to apply to taking charge of your life, begins with the fear of the Lord. It begins with having a right relationship with God. Now, how does one get a right relationship with God? There's only one way to do it. Good works, right? Wrong. There's only one way to get a right relationship with God, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. If there's one Bible passage that the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod has taken a stand on, its entire existence would probably be Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you've been saved. It's a gift of God. It's not of works. It is for by, by grace through faith. So I want you to understand that going in. That your ability to take charge of your life, the life that God has given you, none of this will make any sense. None of this will really work today unless you're operating out of godly wisdom that starts from having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, what Kevin read to you before from Proverbs chapter 425, there's a key verse, and the verse is, let your eyes look straight ahead and fix your gaze directly before you. See, doing that requires that you take charge of your life, that you make the effort to live with focus, to make the effort to live with direction. Now, the focus always is our focus is on heaven, our direction is, and our calling is always heavenward, but Paul says, as you live out the, Solomon says, as you live out this life, there are some things that you might want to take into account. Let me give you four of them. Here's, here's the first step that I want to suggest to you. Taking charge involves taking chances. Now, that may sound kind of odd. I, I'm not really saying that you ought to be foolhardy here. And maybe a better way of saying it would have been this way. Taking charge involves relying on your faith. Remember, we spent four weeks on that. More power to you. To have a great faith. Sometimes you've got to put that faith into practice. You remember the story of David and Goliath? The story is Goliath, and Goliath, nine and a half foot tall, big, huge, ugly ape, probably could have wrestled on WWE. 
Derek would have watched him. Out there every day, and what he would do is he'd march to the top of the hill overlooking the valley, and he would shout at the Israeli armies, and he would say, Look, if you beat me, we'll be your servants. But if I beat your champion, you'll be our slaves. He did this for 30 days in a row, and not one Israel, Israelite soldier would walk down to take on the challenge of Goliath. But one day, a little pink-cheeked boy with red hair came and said, I'll do it. I'll take the chance. His name was David. You probably know how the story turns out. He stops on the way out, picks up five smooth stones, puts them in his pouch. He's got his sling there. It only takes him one rock. And uh, when he rocked, Goliath got stoned. That's pretty good. I just thought of that one. Let me write that down. No, Nancy's got my pen. See, when da- I remember that when David got rocking, Goliath got stoned. I'll remember that one. Okay. Anybody know why, if he could do it with one, one rock, anybody know why he picked up the extra stones? Uh, yeah, Goliath had four brothers. Whoa, just in case, huh? A little retribution. Now, he was willing to take the risk. Now, why? Now, there are a lot of factors in there, because David was a man of faith, that's for sure. David had some previous experience killing the lion and the bear. But because he knew that God was on his side, he was willing to take a chance. He was willing to put his faith into action. See, friends, from day one, from the day that doctor smacked you on behind, and you took that first breath, life has been a risk. And, and life is a, is a series of chances. I mean, they always say you can't steal second base if your foot is still on first. At some point, you've got to take the risk of being thrown out. <clears throat> now, in this parable that I read to you at the beginning... The master condemned the wicked and lazy servant. Why? Because he was afraid to put faith into something he should have known about his master. Solomon makes reference to this tendency of overcaution. I mean, like this verse, Proverbs 22, 13. The sluggard, and by the way, that's just a a fancy word for some lazy, shiftless bum. But the sluggard says, oh, there's a lion outside, or I'll be murdered in the streets. I'm not going to take a chance. I'm not going to leave the comfort of my house. I got news for you, friends. As long as we live, there's always going to be a lion outside the door. There will always be reasons or excuses for not taking a chance. I mean, what if I fail? Well, guess what? Grow up, deal with it. Chances are you will. Now, I watch a fair amount of baseball. I love the game of baseball. But did you ever stop and realize that 80% of the guys who step up to plate never even get to first base? And the guys who actually get to first base, at least one every game gets there by getting hit with a 95-mile-an-hour fastball. Now, do you want to take those chances? Well, if you want to be a baseball player, you will. It's part of the risk. Thomas Watson, who is the founder of IBM, said the key to success is to double your failure rate. Now, I think all he was saying was, you need to learn to take chances. Now, again, I'm not talking about foolhardy risk-taking, you know, walking out here, you know, up to Texas Boulevard, closing your eyes and walking across the street and saying, oh, God will take care of me. I'm not talking about stupid stuff like that. I'm talking about putting faith in a God who's promised to be with you, 
putting your faith in a God who says, I can give you strength, putting faith in a God who can turn the impossible into the possible. Put your faith into action. Here's step number two. Taking charge involves taking inventory. Inventory. Now, every year in January, uh, the President of the United States gives a State of the Union address in which he does three things. One, he emphasizes the highlights of his administration's achievements the previous year. Second, he makes a sales pitch for his ongoing, his upcoming political agenda. And third, he generally takes pot shots at the opposing political party. That's the third thing, in case you were wondering what that is. Now, the idea of a State of the Union address, I think, is really a pretty good thing. As a nation, I think we ought to really have that opportunity to step back, take inventory, and think about where we are and where we're going. For better or worse, maybe that's what some of these recent meetings with congressmen have all been about. People say, we just want to take stock of where we are and where it is you think we should be going. In fact, I think we ought to do that in every area of our life. I mean, in order to take charge of your family, or in order to take charge of your business, or in order to take charge of your marriage, or in order to take charge of your personal life, or your spiritual life, or your physical health, or your finances, all of which falls kind of under the category of Christian stewardship, maybe you need to step back every once in a while and say, where am I at? What's the state of the union? And then you have to make an honest and accurate assessment of your life. And this isn't easy. In fact, if you make an honest assessment, sometimes it's pretty painful. I mean, we'd much rather gloss over things in our life and, and kind of pretend that everything is just fine. Uh, we have a tendency as, I remember this old song. I remember it was Jackson Brown. I can't remember the name of the song. I remember the lyric where he says, we tend to forget about our losses and we exaggerate the wins. See, projecting the image of success, friends, guess what? It doesn't matter. Projecting an image of a happy family doesn't matter. Projecting the image of a godly person doesn't matter. What matters is, what is the actual state of affairs? I mean, think for a moment. What is the state of your marriage? And be honest about it. What is the state of your relationship with your children? Be honest about it. Or what is the state of your relationship with your parents? And be honest. What is the state of your relationship with God? Where are you in the fear of the Lord process of becoming wise? And be honest. Now I want to suggest don't make things worse than they are, but don't make them sound better than they are either. Be honest. In Proverbs 13, Solomon says, Every prudent man acts out of knowledge. You have to know where you are before you can take charge of where you're going. I mean, what about your situation? Are you overlooking something in your life? Are you going through the motions at home? Or dare I ask this question, are you just going through the motions when it comes to your walk with Christ? See, if you want to change your life, most of the time, you can't wait for somebody to point this out. You've got to do it yourself. Act out of knowledge. That's what it says. Act out of knowledge. Find out where you are. Balance your accounts. 
get a checkup, talk to the right people, but most importantly, talk to God. Ask God, God, what is the state of the nation when it comes to me? Take charge of that life. Here's the third thing. Taking charge involves taking responsibility. Taking responsibility. Reminds me of an old joke. There's a guy who's applying for a job, and the owner of the company says, well, the person we hire has to be a person who's responsible. And the man said, well, that's me at my last job. Every time something went wrong, I was responsible. (laughs) Now, in an exaggerated sense, that's a good attitude to have. Assume that you are responsible for everything in your life. I mean, assume for a moment that you're responsible for every situation. I mean, tell yourself this. I'm here because of the decisions I made, the good ones, the bad ones, and the ugly ones. And for that fact, all the things that happened to me because, that were beyond my control, guess what? I'm responsible for my reactions to them as well. How about that? Take that responsibility. You know what people, what people do that are not willing to take responsibility for their own lives? They often take refuge in a little game. It's called the blame game. They're always blaming other people. They don't want to take responsibility for anything in their life, so they, everybody else is always wrong. Oh, it's my parents' fault. It's my kids' fault. It's my wife's fault. It's my husband's fault. It's my boss's fault. It's, my, it's the student's fault. It's the teacher's fault. It's the principal's fault. It's President Obama's fault. It's the pastor's fault. Oh, it's God's fault. Oh, come on, don't make me puke. Own up to some responsibility. Every once in a while, I don't know, anybody listen to car talk? Uh, click and clack the Tappet brothers. They advocate giving people a dope slap. You know, where people do something so dumb, you just, if you ever watch NCIS, Gibbs always does that too. He kind of comes behind a guy and he's going to wax him in the back of the head like, come on, get over it already. I read this not long ago. A, a, a former contestant on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire sued the show because he didn't like the way his question was worded. Now, he said that if he had been asked the question differently, he would have actually got the answer right. Now, he sued for $2 million, even though the question he missed was worth $32,000. Now, I suppose he sued for $2 million because of all the pain pain and suffering and humiliation of being dumb enough to have missed that question. Well, Solomon addressed the same thing. Proverbs 19, a man's own folly ruins his life. In other words, we make our own mess, and then what do we do? Our heart rages against the Lord. I mean, that's the ultimate blame. If you don't like the way it is, blame God. And yet, as long as you're blaming someone else in your situation, friends, guess what? You can never be in charge of your own life. If you're always blaming other people, I don't know. I don't know. If you're that kind of person who always blames other people, how do you manage to confess a sin? Because it can't be your fault. 
You know how to spell blame? Be lame. That's how you spell it. Be lame. I mean, as long as you are blaming other people, you will always be lame. I mean, taking charge of your life requires that you take some responsibility. It requires that you live with the attitude that says, God blessed me with this life. God has blessed me with so many gifts and talents and abilities. Therefore, it's my job to practice good stewardship. It's my job to do something about it. There's a fourth thing here, and that's taking charge involves taking time. Here's what I mean. Each one of you has 24 hours every day. That's 1,440 minutes. Taking charge of your life, again, is just good Christian stewardship. It means that you grab a hold of every one of those minutes that God gives you every day, and you use it as it should be used. Now, in the story I started with from Matthew chapter 25, the master gave each servant a different amount, 5,000, 2,000, 1,000. But in this area of life, when it comes to time, guess what, friends? We all get entrusted with the same amount. We all have 24 hours a day. We all have 1,440 minutes a day. But remember, just like the money did not belong to any of the servants, the time, our time, does not belong to us either. God will hold us accountable for that which he has given us. I often think when I baptize children, a couple of weeks ago, baptized a young little guy, Cash. And I always think that a great thing to do would be to take that child and remind the parents, this is God's child. But God has given this child to you now to raise it. And that puts a whole different spin on it. It says, children are not just something you had by accident or on purpose. But these are gifts from God that God expects you to practice good stewardship with. See, taking those people who are in charge of their lives, take charge of their time. But I can tell you something, that when you start taking control of your time, you're going to quickly learn two things. One, you're going to learn that your time is not as valuable to other people as it is to you. And second, no one else in the world will make sure that you spend your time wisely. You have to learn to do that yourself. Take control of your time, which means that sometimes you have to be very ruthless in some of the decisions you make. I mean, I'd ask you, are your marriage and family important to you? If they are, if the answer is yes, your marriage and your family are important, then you you need to jealously guard your time with them. I mean, don't let anything stand in your way. The same can be said about your commitment to, I don't care, physical fitness, your job, your spiritual life. If it's important, you will find time and take time to do it. I I always remember a a lady at one of our former churches. She told me how she finally was able to carve out time for her devotional life and how to make it a priority. And she finally figured out really the only time she could get her Bible study and her prayer time uh, in was to get up about a half an hour before everybody else in the house got up in the morning. But what she discovered was when she got out of bed, her husband decided to get out of bed too. And then he would start puttering around the house and making noise. And the next thing you knew, all the kids were up. 
and they were begging for breakfast. And the next thing she knew, everybody was getting up a half an hour earlier, and she didn't have any of the privacy that she desired to have with God early in the morning. So she decided she was going to become very ruthless in her time, with her time. Not ruthless with her husband, not ruthless with her kids, but ruthless in the way that she protected that part of the day that belonged exclusively to God. She got her family together and she said, look, I am going to be getting up a half an hour before everyone else to spend time with God. This is his time. Please do not interrupt me when I finish my quiet time. You'll have my undivided attention. And her family honored that request, though she didn't really give them much choice. There's a kind of a P.S. to that story. Uh, the P.S. of the story is that her husband, who still woke up when she woke up, decided to go buy himself a devotional Bible himself and began having morning devotions, something he had never, ever done before. So taking control of your life, practicing stewardship of this life that God has given you, specifically control of your time, grabbing hold of it, mastering it, investing in all those things that God would have you do. See, just like the master in the parable gave his servants money to manage, God has given each and every one of you a life to manage for him. And in order to manage your life effectively, you've got you to gotta take charge of it. In order to manage your life effectively, you need to remember you're not doing this for your own glory, for your own success, but you're always doing it for God's glory and for God's success. One servant was called wicked and lazy because he wasted his opportunity by doing nothing. Friends, I just want to encourage you again, don't waste your opportunities. Take charge of this life that God has given you. Be bold enough to take chances. Step out in faith. Be honest enough to take in inventory. And be mature enough to take responsibility. And be focused enough to take control of your time so that you can learn to live by that proverb that we started with today. The one that said, let your eyes look straight ahead and fix your gaze directly before you. May God grant that for his sake. Amen.